Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, what a treasure that we have in our hands when we hold the Bible. We pray that the Holy Spirit will make it come alive to us and Jesus more real and your love for us more certain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I like to be able to have my notes and the Bible on the pulpit. So I noticed very early on that this was a very small pulpit and needed a little bit of extra work. Um, my first uh, <coughs> first church I preached on had pews, which were sort of 15-minute sermons. I moved to another church that had what I'd call conference chairs, which are like 20-minute sermons. Uh, but these chairs are so comfortable, they've got to be 40-minute sermons. Oh, I heard that. Hey, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're just awesome. We come to your word. We're excited about what you're going to open up. Let's do it. Amen. Some church leaders love vision statements and feel they're a great way to pull a congregation together. Vision statements. However, after an initial fuss, they're often shelved or end up in small print on the newsletter. However, there are exceptions, and this church has an amazing vision statement. It has a great vision statement. In fact, when I was praying about whether to come here or not, one of the things that moved me about being interested to come to preach to the call, to being excited about coming here to preach to the call, was this church's vision statement. And if I were to ask you what it was, would you be able to tell me in unison? I'm I'm teasing. (laughs) I don't expect that at all. What is our vision statement? The vision statement of St. Andrew's. Knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Simple and clear and to the point, and it stirred my soul. Knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And so this series and every sermon series that I'll be preaching while at St Andrews will be focused and will have this element in the background, all the foreground of us knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. In fact, I pray that as we go through this sermon series, each of us will have a closer, deeper, more devotional walk with Jesus. We'll know him better. But also that we'll be encouraged, emboldened and equipped to share Jesus with others, to make Jesus known. So today, as we start this series in the Gospel of John, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the purpose of John's Gospel, a case study in John's Gospel, and then some take-homes or some implication of John's gospel. The purpose, a case study, and then some take-homes. So the purpose of John's gospel. What is his purpose? Why did he write this gospel? Well, to find out, we're going to start in Gospel of John chapter 20. And you might be thinking that if we're going to start a series in the Gospel of John, we should really start in chapter 1. And you'd be right, except it's at the end of his book that John puts it very clearly why he wrote the gospel. You see, he didn't have to write this gospel because there were three other gospels that were already in circulation. Matthew and Mark and Luke were already uh, circulating around the Christian churches of his day. So why did he have to write a fourth? Well, you may be familiar with the three gospels and how they have a a, a similar tone and feel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, Bible scholars and teachers have long recognized how similar these three Gospels are, and they've called them the Synoptic Gospels. 
Synoptic is made up of two words from the Greek. Optic means to see or be seen, and syn, S-Y-N, is together. Synergy, together energy. Synoptic, together see. And so the idea is that uh, people have read the Bible and scholars and and Bible teachers have always felt that those first three Gospels, it's helpful to see them together. Synoptic. And then John, it stands out on its own as unique. And it's unique because it has different material. Some of the material is the same to all four Gospels. But John has some very unique stories like the woman at the well, turning water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead. These are all unique to John and not in the synoptics. The other thing that's unique to John is how Jesus describes himself. Jesus describes himself as, I am the vine. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. These are all unique to John. And so John was saying, well, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they've done a wonderful job telling the Jesus story, but I'm going to come from a different angle. And so he does. And assuming that the people who read the Gospel of John are familiar with the other three, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, John writes his Gospel, and he gives us the reason in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. We see that here. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Wonderful, clear and concise and accurate description of why John wrote his gospel, that we might believe, and that when we believe we might have life, abundant, eternal, and everlasting. Now there's quite a bit happening in these two verses, so let's just unpack them a little bit. Let's have a look at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now what does John mean by a sign? Well, John means that by a sign is a supernatural miracle performed by Jesus that points to who Jesus really is. In fact, John centers his gospel around seven particular signs. He could have chosen a lot more, which is why he says here, Jesus performed far more that are in this book. Go check it out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So for John, whenever there's a miracle or a sign, it always points to Jesus and who he is. So that's the sign. Now, verse 31 leads this to the purpose. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John records the signs in his gospel so that we may have abundant eternal life by believing. We receive this not by following a whole bunch of regulations, by working hard or being good enough. We receive eternal life by believing. Now, what does the Bible mean when it calls us to believe? What does the Bible mean when it says believe? Well, believing starts with holding to certain truths. We believe in our heads and with our minds. And so what truths 
do we believe? Well, we believe that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and appeared to many witnesses. These are historical facts, physical facts, not myth, not legend, not fake news. Jesus was crucified on the cross, buried in a tomb, raised on the third day, and appeared to many witnesses. Now, agreeing to these historical facts falls short of what the Bible means by believing. They are the start of our believing. They are not the end. You see, many people accept the historicity of Jesus, but haven't received the life that he speaks of. Now, why is this? Because accepting facts about Jesus makes no one a Christian. And it certainly won't bring the transformation that we are promised by Jesus in the Bible. You see, there's an infinite distance about knowing about God and knowing God. An infinite distance between knowing about God and knowing God. We know about God with our head, but we know God with our heart. And so that infinite distance is actually only the distance between our head and our heart. Let me tell you a story to help you understand the difference between believing with your head and believing with your heart. There's a story told of a famous tightrope walker by the name of Blondin, and he was wowing the crowds at the late 1800s. He would often stretch out a rope over the Niagara Falls, and then the crowds would flock to watch him walk over. And so Blondin would walk over and have his lunch in the middle. He would cycle over. He would even take a wheelbarrow over. One day he asked the crowd if they believed he could wheelbarrow 80 kilograms of weight across the falls on his tightrope. And the crowd cried out, of course you can. They did not doubt at all that he could. And then Blondin said, who will volunteer first? And the crowd grew silent, and there was a pause, and not one person came forward. Each one in the crowd had seen Blondin do it before. Each one of them believed in their mind that he could wheel them across the, wheel, uh, across the um, tightrope, but no one in their heart of hearts would entrust themselves to Blondin. Now, this is the challenge that we're going to hear time and time again through John's Gospel. He's going to say, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? John's going to say, do you believe that he is the Son of God? And we're going to say, yes. And then, he's, and then John's going to say, do you trust him with all your heart? And then each one of us is going to get into the wheelbarrow. It's a challenge, isn't it? But that's the difference between believing with our head and believing with our heart. And that's what John is going to be calling us to time and time again. And each of us are on a journey. And each one of us, if I was to put my hand up and said, who has the strongest faith here or has a complete faith, then my hand wouldn't be going up because I'm still learning and growing and stretching. But this is going to be the challenge of the gospel. So this is the introduction. Now we come to a case study. How does believing and receiving eternal life work? What's a good example? Well, let's have a look and an example found in the Gospel of John. And we can go no further than Thomas. 
And you think, well, why Thomas? Because we know his nickname. Does anyone like to call out Thomas's nickname? Yeah, Doubting Thomas. He's not going to be the best person to show um, what believing is, except for two reasons. The first one is a practical reason in that uh, the story uh, f- immediately precedes the verses we're looking at. In verse 20, if you were to look up when you go to Bible, you will see the story of Thomas. But also, Thomas is a wonderful example of moving from unbelief to belief, from doubting to faith. So, as a case study, let's look at Thomas's story. And we're familiar with the story of Thomas. Uh, Jesus, on the day that he was resurrected, on the first Easter Sunday, he appeared to his disciples in the evening. Except Thomas wasn't there. We're not told where Thomas was or what he was doing, except he wasn't there. Now, when Thomas did reappear, when he did meet the disciples, the disciples were so excited and said, we've seen Jesus. And what did Thomas say? Well, we pick this up in uh, chapter 20 of John and verse, uh, verse 22, 25. There we go. G- uh, Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where his nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Imagine a surprise when verse 26 A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, instead of scolding Thomas, Jesus says to Thomas these words, verse 27. Put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Faced with the physical evidence of Jesus standing there, wounds and all, Thomas believes. He is our case study. But you're probably thinking, well, it's all very well for Thomas. If Jesus was standing in front of me and said, put your hand in my wounds, I'd believe as well. But that's never going to happen. Which is why verse 29 is Music to our ears. This is written for you and I. This was not written for the disciples. This was written for you and I. Verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you see me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who are sitting at St Andrews at the nine o'clock service, worshipping me, even though they have not seen me, because you have believed. Yes, Thomas believed and was blessed, received eternal life, and faithfully followed our Lord. But, Jesus says, but, blessed are those who also believe, head and heart, heart and soul, but have not seen me. Now what's happening with Thomas is echoed in a writing by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. So we're just going to skip over to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and use this as a lens to open up what's happening with Thomas. This verse is made of two parts. Notice how the second part of this verse speaks directly into Thomas's life. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Now see how that second part of this verse reinforces exactly what's happening with uh, Thomas. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will believe. Thomas believed with his head and his heart that Jesus had raised from the dead. He was standing there and so he's saved. He's received eternal life and it's the same for us. When we believe in our heart that Jesus is raised from the dead, then we are saved. Now there are two parts to Matthew chapter, uh, sorry, uh, Romans ten nine. Two parts, and that first part is just important. Let's look at that first part. Uh, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So there's two parts. Let's kick back into Thomas and see how he gets in. So let's go back to John chapter twenty. See if he confesses with his mouth. What he confesses is with his mouth. We see this in John um, chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. That's no coincidence, is it? Romans 10, uh, verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And what's Thomas's first words that come from his mouth? My Lord. Thomas is saying, I used to be Lord of my life. I used to be Lord of my time and my affections. And my allegiances, they were focused on me. But now I give you everything. Not only do I see that you are Lord over sin and death, you're standing there in front of me, but you are now my Lord, my Saviour, my Master, my Lord and my God. He believes in his heart and he's confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. And this is why Thomas is our example, our case study. But it doesn't stop there because he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas is declaring Jesus to be God himself. No Jew would ever, be the, would ever do this. And we know, of course, that Jesus and the disciples, the twelve, were Jewish. But no Jew would confess any human to be God. It's blasphemy. And we saw this earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 10. Uh, the, the Jews, the religious leaders, are picking up stones and about to kill Jesus with the stones. And Jesus said, why are you killing me? And they said, for blasphemy, for you are claiming to be God. And here, Thomas confesses, Jesus, you are God. And he, as he does so, he is worshipping my Lord and my God. So Thomas ticks all the boxes <laughs> in such a muddly way. It's a bit like us, really. By God's grace, we can tick the boxes, but it's always muddly <laughs> and sometimes very messy. And so we circle back to the why of John and his gospel. He wrote, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life in his name. And we've just seen that a few verses early with Thomas. So this then is our introduction to the Gospel of John. We'll get to some take-homes in a minute. But going forward, we're going to um, have this series through John, and we're going to structure it around the seven signs that John um, structures his Gospel around. Starting uh, in, in John chapter 1, we will linger in John chapter 1. If I was still teaching, I would set you all homework. 
<laughs> and I'd be saying, get your homework diaries out, put John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Read it and be transformed for next Sunday. <laughs> Can you do that for me? I, won't, I promise I won't put anyone on detention. We're going to linger in John chapter 1 for a few weeks, and then we're going to pick up the seven signs. And the first sign is Jesus turning water into wine. Hey, isn't that a puzzling miracle? Hey, but that's, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, just to getting ahead of myself a little bit. What about some take-homes for today? So where we're going in the next few weeks, a few months, is we're going to linger in John's Gospel. What about take-homes for today? What about something we can get our teeth into during the week? Well, two things. First thing, believing with our head and our heart. So John is challenging you and I with these words. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe fully with your head and your heart? Wow. Or are we like the crowd who loves to see the tightrope walker but will never get into the wheelbarrow? Do we give mental assent to Jesus, the Son of God? Or do we hold some... And and do we hold something back? Is our hearts a long way away from Jesus? Have we got on the wheelbarrow? Have you ever got on the wheelbarrow with Jesus? Hmm. Have we ever allowed him to push us out over a great height with our lives in his hands <laughs> while our white knuckles are gripping the edge of the wheelbarrow? Some of us have, and it's scary, but I tell you what, we live to tell the tale. And this is how Jesus transforms our lives. So as we soon come to communion, as you hold the bread and the cup, I encourage you to recommit yourself to Jesus, to believe with your head and heart that he is Saviour and Lord. So that's the first thing. The second thing is all about submitting and worshipping. Submitting and worshipping. Thomas said, my Lord and my God, as you hold the cup and take the bread, can you say, my Lord and my God? What did that look like for India? Uh, for, for Thomas, sorry. What did that look like for Thomas? Well, Thomas was, a, according to church tradition, this is not in the Bible, but according to church tradition, uh, Thomas went to India as a missionary, right down the south to Kerala. Uh, in fact, there is still a church that has its roots, not back through the Protestant church or the Catholic church, but goes right back to Thomas in India, in the south. And he grew the church and was eventually martyred. That's what it meant for Thomas to be my Lord and my God. Now, God doesn't call us to such extremes. Maybe he does, but for most of us, he doesn't. What does it mean to say, my Lord? Will I submit to you as Thomas submitted to you, as you hold the bread and the cup? Pray that you will submit. I have work to do on this. Most of my life is fine, but there are a few things I'm a wee bit reluctant to hand over to Jesus. I've got a couple of little fences in my life, and unfortunately there's a sign that says out of bounds, which I'm ashamed of <laughs> and working on. What are your out of bounds to Jesus? What needs working on? As you come with the cup and drink the blood where he paid his life for us and his body that was broken for us, ask Jesus to tear those fences down.
My Lord and my God, my God, it means to worship. Now, some of us may have this submitting right. We might be very good and very obedient, but have our hearts grown cold? Are we good at the worshipping? Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and we see that in Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3. And even in Revelation um, chapter 2 it is, he writes to the Ephesians and said, I see what you're doing. You're doing a great job. You're awesome. Keep it up. But I have this one thing against you. Your heart has grown cold. Return to me in love and worship. Soften your heart to Jesus. Maybe there's some of us here too that have been obedient, doing the right thing, but our hearts have grown cold. As you take the cup and the bread, I encourage you to soften your heart to worship my Lord and my God. Pray that as you hold the cup that you ask Jesus to draw you closer to him that you may worship with all your hearts. For Jesus calls us to his table, each by name, and he calls and says, Blessed are you who have not seen me, yet have believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of the Gospel of John. Thank you that John wrote it, even though there are another three that he could have said, oh, it's been done. But your spirit moved him to write this gospel so that we will be challenged heart and mind to believe. And when we do, to experience eternal, everlasting life that we taste now and will experience in glory and all fullness. Open our hearts, Lord. Move us as we come to communion to give everything to you as Lord and Saviour. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.